Welcome to the Primary Source Podcast. My name is Tom Bober, a school librarian in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. This podcast is here to explore how primary sources can be used in K-12 libraries and classrooms. We'll dig into resources and teaching strategies, talk to educators who are utilizing primary sources, and supporters of educators who curate these incredible items and use them in their work. I'm really excited for you to listen to today's episode because we're listening to someone who is coming from a completely different area than we normally get to hear from. When I talk to my students, especially my youngest students, and we talk about who comes together to make a book, of course, we talk about authors. When appropriate, we talk about illustrators. And then we usually talk about publishers. And I usually say that Publishers are people within a company who come together and take the author's words and illustrator's pictures and put them together to create a book. But our person we're talking to today is going to share with us that there's really so much more in our historically based nonfiction books and nonfiction picture books. We're going to be talking to Carolyn Yoder. She's the founding editor. She's currently the editorial director of Calkins Creek, which is an imprint of Astra Books for Young Readers. And not only is Carolyn going to share her role that she plays with her authors and her illustrators, but what I love so much is she's also going to talk about different types of primary sources that are important to her in when she's looking at authors and illustrators' work. She's going to talk about the importance of analyzing and understanding what a primary source actually says, and she's going to give us all of these different layers that I think not only for me make a great listen, but also can be things that I can share with my students and show them the importance of primary sources in not only the books that they read, but in the research that they do. I hope that you find it equally as entertaining and equally as useful. Enjoy the episode. Friends, I'm so happy to have Carolyn Yoder here with us. She's going to bring to our podcast episode today a new perspective because we've never had the opportunity to talk with someone from the publishing side of things around primary sources and their the role that they play in books. Carolyn's going to give us her perspective on that today. And so, Carolyn, I'm so glad that you were able to join us for the Primary Source Podcast. My pleasure. We're going to jump right in because I know that we have librarians and and teachers and, and even students who listen to this podcast who may not be familiar with exactly what an editor at a publishing house does, let alone an editorial director. So can you start us out by sharing just a little bit about what your role is and, and maybe from a kind of a big picture perspective of working at Calkins Creek? to that smaller perspective of working with a particular author. Okay. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Uh, Calkins Creek is entering its 20th year, and we are the U.S. history imprint of Astra Books for Young Readers. And as the editorial director, it's my job or role to oversee the books that Calkins Creek does. Um, my background comes into play um, with the formation of Calkins Creek because I was the founding editor 20 years ago. And I come out of scholarly publishing, um, which stresses research, that's primary and secondary research, 
working with experts, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those things we have brought to Calkins Creek. We specialize in nonfiction picture books, long nonfiction, and historical fiction. And I will say within almost every book, we have primary documentation. So my philosophy has been since the very beginning, original research, diverse research equals original story. So when I say primary documents, I'm not just talking about quotations or, you know, journals or letters or newspaper accounts. I'm talking about photographs. I'm talking about artifacts. I'm talking about FBI documents, et cetera, et cetera. Our books are a just a wealth of celebration of research to, to really stimulate that in kids. Um, when I work with an author, I, I will always say, and I will, I should also point out that Calkins Creek now um, involves an associate editor and editorial assistant um, because we do about, I would say 12 to 15 titles a year, if not more. Um, but we're all about U.S. history, and of course, we're all about research. So that comes into play. Um, when I'm working with an author, I will always ask or always look in the very beginning. We, we always have to see a bibliography. We have to see what the story is based on. Uh, and that has to be, again, as I just pointed out, diverse research, secondary, primary, field research, interviews, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes I feel like I, I'm drawn to a manuscript, but I'm not drawn uh, as, uh, I'm not bowled over by the research. So I will encourage the author to dig deeper, uh, see if there are any archives, et cetera, et cetera. And it, and it was funny because I was thinking today about a particular story um, with a upcoming manuscript. And uh, the manuscript was very strong and had gone through several revisions, but I felt like it didn't have like rich details, which you sometimes find in primary sources. Um, and so I, I, I called the author, or actually we had a Zoom, and we were talking about the research and she said, well, you know, it's uh, there is a manuscript that the subject wrote, but I can't get my hands on it. And so I said to her, and I verified this today when I called her. Um, I said, you have to find that manuscript. You just have to do it. You have to be a pest. And she went to the museum where she thought it was. And they told her, well, maybe it's with the subject's granddaughter who she called. I mean, she was relentless, which you sort of have to be. And the granddaughter said, well, maybe it's with the great-grandson. And it turned out to be. But there was not just one manuscript. There were several revisions. Um, the author then got on a plane, went to see the great-grandson, found a treasure trove of photographs, the manuscripts, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I was very happy. Um, and, and she quoted me today. And she said that all that primary, uh, you know, documentation added special details that took the manuscript to another level. So I will push push authors, um, you know, we'll talk about what's the best format, you know, how we, how we should display the quotations or the photos, et cetera, et cetera. But I will tell you, every author <laughs> of Calkins Creeks 
loves to do the research, loves to be a detective. I love that story. And that as you, before you even said the term treasure trove, that was the, the term that came into my mind because I'm as an author who loves research as, as all your authors are, I mean, this idea of coming in and finding all of that. Right. And, and one thing that we talk with when we get a chance to talk to authors on this podcast about is just how these primary sources change and shift their perspective of the story that they're working to tell. Yeah. And I think for some authors who aren't, um, perhaps they're coming to nonfiction at the, you know, the first time or, you know, they've rich, written fiction, they don't really know, you know, they're like mm, nonfiction. I don't know. I don't know if I can handle that. You know, they, they come to love it. They come to be, they love the pursuit and they love the final, you know, outcome. Um, there's one more story, if you don't mind, that I'll tell. Um, we did a book on Benjamin Talmadge, who was very instrumental in the Culper spy ring, uh, George Washington, and played a part in the Battle of Long Island. And when he crossed on the boats, he forgot his horse. It's nonfiction, <laughs> believe me. Anyway, so the author was relentless. You know, I said, yeah, you have to find that horse's name. We can't just say the horse because it's so important. And I talked to her today and she was encouraged to go to the David Library, which is very near me, which is a Revolutionary War uh, library, which has all kinds of primary sources. And lo and behold, she found the horse's name uh, by way of deduction. And that was her first book with Calkins Creek, uh, 2007, I believe. And she's gone on to write about eight books for us. She just, you know, she loves, she loves the journey. It, it sounds like, I, I think one thing I'm hearing from you that, that I think that some of our listeners would really be interested in, both maybe from a, a writing point of view, if, if they're a professional writer or from a teaching point of view, if they're an educator is this idea that when we pick that book up off our shelf, whether it be our library shelf or our bookstore shelf or wherever it sits, our classroom shelf, that when that story first came to you, it sounds like so often that's not the final version that we end up seeing, that there's all of this other work that that you're doing. And in many ways, primary sources are coming into play with regard to what you're asking of these authors as far as like pushing that story further. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's true. I mean, we have a lot of authors that we've worked with for many years and, and they kind of, for lack of a better word, know the drill. They know, you know, how to do the research. They know, you know, the value of primary documents. They know what we look for. Um, but in the beginning, they, they might not know the richness that can take place in the research. And, so what might happen is I might ask, you know, have you really dug deep enough? Have you looked at other people, not just your subject? Have you considered like what other people thought of your subject or other people at the event or just other perspectives? Um, and have you decided, um, have you really interpreted the primary document? That is what's very, very important. You know, you just don't take a primary document at face value. You know, you look at it, you analyze it, where does it come from? So some of the authors I've worked with for years and years and years kind of know, like they're like, ooh, there is a primary document. You know, I want to include that quote or 
you know, that adds so much to it. Um, in the beginning, um, I kind of instilled the fear of God into, in a way, for lack of a better word, on the value really of primary documents. I mean, it's just not like, I, I think sometimes, you know, people, you know, people say, oh, I have to include primary documents. It's almost like a chore, but, um, Primary documents add so much to a manuscript. They add credibility. They add life to the subject. They add perspective. They they make all of these things real. They they just bring everything to the forefront. Um, and hopefully, with us, they inspire kids to love the past, know the people, um, and you know know how to interpret. Um, research or know how to interpret the story on a different level. So I, I love what you said just now. You're actually answering questions that I wanted to ask, which is the, the thing I was just thinking about is just, just this kind of big picture idea of the, of the role that primary sources play in us telling a historical story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you really have hit so many of the marks there with, with what you just said or, or kind of the, in, in what you're trying to impress upon uh, authors that are are new to Calkins Creek mm-hmm. and and new to working with you uh, as far as the value of the primary source. And then also, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned this idea of the analysis of the source itself, mm-hmm. like so many different ways that that we can look at it. Um, and, and then also that we can, and I do this with my students, so many ways that we can essentially determine its value mm-hmm. uh, in, in kind of our understanding of, of the moment. Yeah. You um, know, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but no, I learned please. that kind of um, a long about way. I mean, I learned it when I was in scholarly publishing because I was dealing with, you know, Harvard professors and MIT professors, you know, people who were very good at research, maybe not so great at writing, but, you know, they, you know, so I learned quite a lot about just the value of, Uh, of that. And so, but it was interesting. I worked with an author for years, Harold Holzer, who's a Lincoln scholar. Uh, And so I learned a great deal from him. We worked on, I think, three books together. And I remember when he was writing about the Gettysburg Address, um, there were so many different perspectives from different reporters. And he would say, well, that reporter was, you know, was biased in this way. This reporter maybe was looking the other way or this reporter was, you know, not as engaged or whatever. He knew actually the people behind the quotes. Um, you know, I'm not so sure that perspective is always taken into account, but it's very, very important. Yeah, that Including idea of- the subject itself, because the subject can be quite biased and... Um, so, and that comes into play. We, um, to go on, if you don't mind, we did a book called Cloaked and Courage um, about Deborah Sampson. And the back matter really includes a lot about the research. I mean, the fact that she gave her account and whether or not it was trusted or she gave her, she gave a speech and it was recorded by somebody else. And was that to be trusted? And so, but the author wanted it to be upfront with how you interpret the material. And then she also talked about Paul Revere, who wrote about Deborah Sampson, and I think helped raise money for her pension. So there's all different perspectives coming into play. So kids will say, wow, that's that's how this story develops, or, you know, that's how the author took this point of view 
type of thing. I, I love the the uh, uh, that more nuanced explanation of perspectives. Not only this idea that the creator of the source mm. had a perspective and and potentially something that they wanted to convey as they were creating this, whether they were deciding where to point the <laughs> camera or or what to to write in the newspaper article or whatever it was, uh, but also that when we have information directly from the individual that maybe we're writing about as authors, mm -hmm. that uh, they've got a, a perspective too. They have a, a story that they're trying to tell about themselves, right. right? We all kind of, we all tell our own stories, you know? I mean, there, you know, Instagram is the worst version of that maybe in some yeah, sense. We right? all want like, to be yeah. heroes of our own stories. So, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt, you know, type of thing. Or if somebody's really not very, verbose or uh, personal. Um, that's why going back to that story, uh, the book about Benjamin Talmadge, the book is really based on his journal. And, you know, back in the day, back in the Revolutionary War, you know, a lot of people just sort of said, got up, the weather's, you know, it's cold, I'm going to go out and hoe the fields or whatever. You know, it's it was very agrarian and focused, not necessarily always, but he was very, very eloquent and um, forthcoming. And it just, it was a wealth of information. And that's basically what she based the book a lot on. Um, but, you know, so, you know, one other thing about using primary sources is sometimes it's difficult because the language might be a little bit, you know, old fashioned or stilted and kids might go, oh, I'm, I'm just going to skirt over that. Um, and sometimes what we do is weave the quotes within the text. Uh, we uh, Harold Holzer was brilliant at that. Um, and then at other times we will highlight the quote so kids can ponder it. I mean, we did that in Brilliant Calculator, um, and we actually did it um, in handwriting. So it kind kind of came across as you know Edith Clark's, you know, and you know the book is just filled with her quotes as display items and then her equations and her patents. And it's just a celebration of primary documents, which is what we're all about. So, yeah. So let me ask you a question about that because really as a reader and, and, and I'm someone who maybe is a little obsessed with the use of primary sources in, in, in children's uh, nonfiction. So maybe I'm an anomaly, but as I'm reading these, and you're you're really giving us some examples here. I often see clues that lead me to primary sources mm -hmm. that probably impacted the story in some way. Um, as you read a story for the first time, is that something you're thinking about too? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, again, I will look at the bibliography, which we always print in in the book, um, always in the back matter. So if <laughs> a kid who's inspired wants to actually look up like, you know, the, the writings of Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson or whomever we're featuring, they can go to those and, you know, learn even more. But I will, if there isn't any primary source, I, um, or it's limited as in the case of Deborah Sampson or in the case of somebody who's not so well known, um, who is underrepresented, which a lot of our subjects are, um, then I will, I'll say, I'll think about, you know, the history as a whole, like, you know, again, are there other perspectives on this subject? 
um, what is the limitations of the research. And sometimes when I'm reading a manuscript, if I don't really see a lot of quotations or I don't know if photographs exist or whatever, I can tell from the bibliography that the research might be limited. I will look up if there are archives and I uh, on that particular subject, and I will encourage the author to go seek them out or on maybe a broader subject. Let's say um, we're doing a thing on Walt Whitman. And so maybe there's poetry arc. I'm kind of making that up. I'm not so sure that's true, but um, just any kind of outreach that you can expand the subject. Um, so yes, it's, it's definitely a, um, a, a source of, it's definitely important to me. I will tell you, um, one, two times, I think we've done it. We did a book called Call of the Klondike. And uh, the author was somebody who basically got from a relative, like a bundle of newspaper articles, letters, et cetera. It's, hold on just a minute. Because I had it here. He got um, a bag full of old letters, telegrams, and newspaper articles from a family member <clears throat> that he didn't know what to do with. So I got them and I was very excited. I could see somewhat the story. And we hired an author, David Meisner, who was fabulous. And he wove all of those letters and telegrams and newspaper articles into a fabulous narrative. So basically, Call of the Klondike is all primary documents. And then to top it all off, David actually went on Call of the Klondike. He went up there and so, to sort of figure out if it all made sense, if what they wrote about, even though it was many years before, um, he just wanted to get a feel for it. So if the primary documents were in fact, uh, I mean, you know, we kind of knew they were legitimate, but you know, whether or not they were sort of leading us in the right direction. Um, another book we did like that was called Bound by Ice by Sandra and Neil Wallace, who are both, um, Sandra Neil Wallace and Rich Wallace, sorry, um, who are both investigative reporters. And that book also is entirely primary documents. So it's amazing what they can do on their own um, if they're written well and have a really great uh, narrative to tell. I love for I, I went and looked up that book because it sounded familiar. The 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 first one, the Klondike book. I do have that one in my in my library, and uh, it is a great book. I think it's it's been out a little while because I know that I read it a while back. Yep. But it um but it, uh I I love what you said too about this idea, and we've we've had a chance for some authors to kind of bring this up. This idea about essentially place being primary source also right. this idea of actually going to where something happened Absolutely. and even though obviously uh there's changes in in maybe the setting uh that they're in there's elements that they can kind of connect to that history and make connections between all of those other resources or research that they've done yeah. uh through their journey yeah and going back to rich wallace and sandra neil wallace they had made several several trips to selma um, and gotten um, just a wealth of information and kept going back uh, because, you know, they'd see a story here and a story there. And it, one story, one of their books was called Blood Brother on Jonathan Daniels. Um, and then another book that was sort of related or came <clears throat> came out of those 
incredible um, trips to Selma was the Teachers March, where they were able to meet people in the march, Reverend Reese and et cetera, et cetera. But there again, you can, um, Larry Dane Brimner, who's written a lot for us, you know, as many times on Birmingham, he wrote Birmingham Sunday, he wrote Black and White, uh, which was about Fred Shuttlesworth and Bull Connor. He met Fred Shuttlesworth. I mean, a lot of times people will will meet their subjects um, and interview them and then meet people who are also instrumental. In the Teachers March, they uh, the Wallaces interviewed quite a few people um, involved in the march, um, and that was very important to them, as, as you say, so is place. Um, I think for the most part, place... Um, uh, most people will want to go to to where they're writing about because it's so so important. Um, we're doing a book coming out on Roberto Clemente and Rudy Gutierrez, who's the artist, spent a lot of time in Puerto Rico. Um, just because you get the feel for the tone of the book, the uh, you know sort of the place where Clemente came from, but also a fact that he's revered there. Absolutely. And, um, yeah. So, yeah, place, I, I would say most authors um, either go back to the same place and kind of, um, you know, for inspiration. Um, it's interesting because on um, Selene, the woman who wrote By the Sword, she had written about Lafayette and Washington, and she ended up going to, I believe, a Lafayette event at, um, now I'm going to forget the name of the, uh, it's a fort um, where, um, that she wrote about in Seeking Freedom. But it was a fort where they were meeting, I believe. And as a result, she got another idea for another book. Um, so sometimes, you know, people introduce people to, um, to things or a place is so inspiring um, that it leads to multiple books. That's incredible. Um, I want to I want to circle back to this idea of of looking at readers, I guess, with with regard to these so many of your books and and the primary sources that are connected with them, um, and maybe ask kind of more of an overview question. So, when I'm talking with my students about historically based nonfiction mm-hmm. books, in addition to talking to them about what the book is about. I'm also often talking about how that story is told, maybe the language that's being used or the nuances that are in there, um, the intimacy of you know conversations that you get in some of these longer form right. nonfiction stories. And I'm wondering if you see primary sources playing a role in the language of a story and, and how a story is told. Yeah, usually with each book, each book has its own life and its own format for lack of a better word. So I will spend time either working with the author and how best to, to tell that story, how best, you know, do primary sources will always be a part of every story, but you know, how are they placed? Uh, where are they placed? Um, um, are there, if it's longer nonfiction, what are the roles of photographs? You know, do you have a lot of photographs? Um, 
and there's quite a bit of talk about care with those photographs. You know, are they kid friendly? Will kids pick up on that? Um, when I'm working on a book with Gail Jaro, um, I don't know if you know of her work, but we did um, a book called Ambush recently, which is part of her medical fiasco uh, series. We talk a lot about um, how the story should be broken up. Should there be sidebars? Should you, you know, what kind of photographs are there? I mean, in Ambush, there were some very detailed images. There weren't just... Uh, it's about James Garfield and being shot and sort of the medical care that went into it. And that was botched up, which was a medical fiasco. Um, and then, you know, we'll talk about like maybe a picture of his backbone where then they have it, where the bullet went through, which we know kids would be interested in. So there's always, primary sources are always a part of it. It's how they're really incorporated in telling that story. You know, we don't want it, we don't want them to get in the way. We don't want the quotations to overpower the story. Um, we don't want them to, uh, sometimes we put the quotations at the beginning of a chapter, you know, they don't break it up or they're interspersed within the thing. So it's all a matter of balance and context. Um, that's kind of key in how we tell a story. I, I'm not so sure that's a total answer, but... Um, well, I'm glad that you mentioned the imagery, too, because you mentioned earlier the book, um, The Brilliant Calculator, and I'll give the subtitle, too, How Mathematician Edith Clark Helped Electrify America. This is by Jan Lauer and illustrated by Susan Regan. Mm -hmm. And I want to just re reference Susan's work because part of, of, you know, as I mentioned, I come, I'm always looking for the primary source or the primary sources. She really includes that illustration of this kind of calculation device that yeah, that and that and actually invented. that that might answer your question if I speak to that book because we talked quite a bit about how do you make a book about a calc a, a paper calculator inventor sexy and interesting and you know kid friendly like what do you do you know how do you kind of broach that subject so we we knew we wanted to have quotes from her to make her come alive. Um, we didn't want them to be intrusive. We wanted them to be somewhat connected to her evolution throughout the book. We also wanted all the equations, you know, to, to give the fact that she really was into math and she was into puzzles. And, you know, so all those equations and everything else are accurate. And they were wow. a big part of the design. That's where you get into design. And uh, we do a lot of books with, well, we do almost all our books with Barbara Greslow who is an art director. So there's a lot of care that goes into what should we place on the page, but um, we will just send Susan Reagan the layout with text. She can do with it what she wants. And she was amazing. She brought to life that, um, you know, Edith Clark, which could have been sort of a deadly dull, <laughs> straightforward biography. But, um, but, but yeah, no, was, was really fascinating. And, and I think you get this appreciation for not only her hard work, but her desire to be recognized right. for that work, which was also, I think, an important part of, at least for me as a reader, an important part of her right. story. And for me also with, especially with the nonfiction picture books, we didn't do this so much in the early days of Calkins Creek, but now if we do have a photograph or a photo that will add depth to the subject, 
we will add that in the back matter. Because, you know, when I was a kid, I was always like, what did this person look like? You know, I have all these books on nonfiction, like on, you know, whatever her name was, first woman doctor, you know, and oh, Elizabeth Blackwell, sorry. And, um, you know, there were no, I don't believe there are any images in it. So, you know, sometimes it's hard to get, we do have a picture of Edith Clark. We do have a picture of uh, women calculators at the time or computer O's. I'm not so sure what they were called. Uh, we have a, we have pictures of her patents, um, which add, you know, this is a woman who worked very hard um, and should be celebrated. The other thing we try to do, not always, I think we did it in both Josephine um, and her amazing dishwashing machine and this book is point to other women who followed Edith Clark. Um, and so that way kids can make a connection that history is always evolving, always changing, always to be appreciated. And again, I go back to the, the reason why we have photos and that we have quotations is to tell kids that these people really existed. Um, because for the most part, they're gonna, not going to know, they're going to come to these books um, kind of cold. Um, and to me, it's not really important that it's a book about Edith Clark, per se. It's a book about a person who had a passion and a love and carried that through their whole life. So, you know, those are basically what our books are about. A person with a purpose who follows through. So as you, as you've just mentioned, Josephine and her dishwashing machine, I have it right in my hand. I was just paging through the back matter as you were saying that. And surely enough, uh, you know, it's got all of those pieces to it. Um, but, but I think interesting to be told like that back matter and the brilliant calculator back matter feel also very different in ways too. So that there, the uniqueness to the story doesn't stop at the end of the story. It continues on into that. back. And some of our, some of the back matter can be, um, it's all very different. It's all based on, um, what the book is about. So the brilliant calculator, um, you know, is, for lack of a better word, our, the back matter was more r- realistically based and Josephine had more of a illustrative flair throughout. I mean, we the patents were illustrated. I mean, we have the patents in the back matter, but it just had a different tone to it. Um, that's just what was called for. And, and I should point out, um, and, you know, I tip my hat to the illustrators who work with us. They do an incredible amount. I mean, all of our books, the authors work very carefully with experts. That's part of the bibliography. That's part of the source material. And usually experts do help with primary sources. They might say, hey, you should go here. You should do this. You should have this letter. You should do this, whatever. Um, And usually the expert, we keep on board to look at the sketches, to look at the art. Um, And the artists do a great deal of research as well as the author. So, um, and they look a lot at primary documents as well. So there's a lot of care and a lot of depth that go, go into these books. Well, since we're tipping our hat, Josephine and her dishwashing machine illustrated by Sarah Green, Kate Hannigan is the author of that book. So just so we're given, we're, we're kind of acknowledging all of those folks that do all of that research. And you're right. I, sometimes as I'm looking, um, in, through picture books, uh, 
and I and I'm and reading them and I'm looking for those clues. Where are the primary sources connected with this book? Sometimes in fact, a lot of times they're through the illustration as well. When they show me a patent, when they show me um, that person with a newspaper or a magazine in their hand, like mm-hmm. that, that sometimes is just my clue, like, oh, I can go in that direction or that direction. Somebody talking to a reporter and it's visually shown. Yeah. All of those things are wonderful uh, evidence of, of, as like you said, the research that those illustrators do and then incorporate right. and, into their and, work. Um, uh, one of our books, Full of Beans by Peggy Thomas, I don't know if you about it's about Henry Ford and the soybean. I think the back matter is like 12 pages long. So there's stuff about the soybean. There is, you know, there's his menu at the World's Fair where it was all soybean. Um, there's information about a soybean coat. I mean, it just was went on and there was so much great. There's a timeline. There's there was so much information um, and cool stuff. That we couldn't stop there, you know. It's like amazing what this guy did with soybean. You know, we have the soybean painted car and et cetera, et cetera. So, a general promotion to make sure that you dig into that back matter. Don't don't stop at <laughs> well, the end the of the story because you're right. In the beginning, when we were starting out, people would say, "What is all that move?" You know, I won't say you know what they would call the back matter, but you know, I just kept at it. You know, we always have promoted. Um, we're a history imprint. So we promote research and, you know, and, and, and some people say to me, well, who's going to read the back matter? Is that for teachers or, you know, is that for librarians? And I said, no, it's for, I hope it's for everybody. I hope kids will um, be inspired to go find, find out more. I mean, that's what we're trying to do, especially in a nonfiction picture book, pique their interest you know, pique their interest in research so they can even go further and find out more. I love that. And we try to do that so often in my library with mm-hmm. my students. Um, I want to ask you one last question, Carolyn. Uh, when I get a chance to speak to authors on this podcast, um, I often ask them if there was a primary source that surprised them, that made them think differently about a story that they were that they were working on. So from from your position, have you ever seen a primary source that impacted or changed the story in a way that was surprising for you, just kind of the unexpected? Well, you know, I go back to Rich and Sandra Wallace, who were investigative reporters, and in their book, Blood Brother, uh, there's a whole section in the back of them uh, taking a photograph of him and getting it investigated. Some people say it really wasn't of Jonathan Daniels. It's at the March on Washington. And they got a forensic um, scientist, I might be getting that wrong, to analyze the photograph, to really dig deep and look and, you know, study his eyes, study his ears. I'm like, wow. I mean, you know, this is dedication. And they came to the conclusion that it was Jonathan Daniel, that he was at the March on Washington. And he, you know, he was a very um, dedicated civil rights activist who lost his life or gave his life for the movement. Um, and that was just interesting. They also talked about, um, uh, looking at some of his undeveloped uh, film that came out of his camera, um, that was, I believe found in his home. I might, that might be wrong, but they just astonish me with the amount of research they do. And, 
you know, I, I just was blown away by that. I mean, just the diversity, the dedication, the people they talked to. And really, at the end of that book, they had done so much further research that they then dedicated their research or put their research into an archive. So they've paid it forward, um, which is astonishing. I know when they they give talks, people are always blown away by everything they've ever done. And, you know, they've made connections along the way. I talked about Salman. Um, and they just, you know, they've opened my eyes a lot. So, so did Harold Holzer a lot when I worked with him. It means all my authors and illustrators have. These are, this is just one incredible example of proving a point or, or, you know, really analyzing. And, and it wasn't that it was of just of Jonathan Daniel. It was that he was at the march. Um, and that was crucial to his, his personality, his dedication and his perseverance. So it was incredible. I, I love, I love that example. And it's so amazing. I mean, it seems uh, like the, the kind of pinnacle example of, of that, when you do so much research that you actually have your own archive at the end. But I also love kind of that smaller story of examining that photograph, because ultimately when we are doing this type of research, when authors are doing this research, mm -hmm. when students and educators are doing this research, ultimately we're trying to answer a question. Yeah. And when those unique questions pop up that we need to just not only, um, answer and and kind of address our own curiosities but also in your author's case to tell the stories that they want to tell i love that primary sources can be a part of that yeah i just i don't know if i can i broke my wrist so i'm a little bit but this is i don't know if you oh, yeah. can see that that's them that was the whole and it's like two pages long about the analysis of this photograph and what it meant um so yeah they they really are they really will go to all ends, but they're also not just, you know, they're just not doing research for research's sake. They genuinely love to do it and love the people they talk to. And it shows in their writing. I mean, it comes through. The passion comes through. I love that. Uh, Carolyn, thanks for sharing so many <laughs> stories of your Calkins Creek authors and, and the stories that, that they bring to us as readers. And thank you for sharing your perspective and all of that and your expertise that you bring to to their work and and also to us today. I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the Primary Source Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anybody that loves primary sources is a-okay with me. <laughs> all right. I love it. You're okay. You're a-okay with me too, Carol. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. All right.